Hello and welcome to a Catholic and a Protestant walk into a bar. I'm Elijah and I'm a Protestant. And I'm Nathaniel and I'm a Catholic. So today we're going to be talking about canonization of saints, not about making cannons and shooting cannonballs. Mm-mm. Yeah, so canonization um, is a process um, by which the, the church um, looks at the lives of probably famous Christians um, uh, and determines, is this person a saint? Um, not only are they holy, but is this person in heaven? Is this person experiencing the, uh, the beatific vision? Uh, that is, is he seeing God face to face? And so the church um, has a process by which, you know, uh, they pretty much go into a uh, Sherlock Holmes mode um, and uh, just weigh the evidence, investigate the life of whatever person or whatever cause is brought up and see if you know, if this is something that the church can get behind or not. And it takes, depending on the popularity of the person, it can take hundreds of years, or it could take not as much. Um, Traditionally, though, um, to be a saint, uh, you're probably going to be canonized probably a few hundred years after your death. Um, And thus, to be canonized saint, to be a canonized saint, to be in the canon of the church... You're going to have to be dead. I'm sorry. But alive in Christ, but dead here on earth. Okay, so at risk of being redundant here, again, we're talking about canonization. Um, and that comes from canon. Um, now, canon uh, basically means a list. Or if you, you know even talk about it in the sense of you know the canon of scripture or so on, canon is a stick by which you measure something. And so, basically, it's a, it's a, a ruler. Yeah. A ruler. So when we talk about the canon of saints, we're talking of a, a list of holy people. Now, when it comes to the practice of the you know the church, um, this refers to um, basically the list of saints that are perhaps mentioned at the altar at mass at the sacred liturgy. I mean, the most holy point for a Catholic is you know you're actually worship you know where the Eucharist is offered to God. Um, so. Um, there is within the church um, something that's you probably hear in a lot of uh, Western Catholic churches called the Roman Canon, and it's this mm-hmm. long list of early martyrs. So you're talking about early popes, you know, succeeding, you know, Peter. You have, you know, uh, you know, famous martyrs like Lucy or Perpetua and Felicity. Um, it, it's Patrick. A lo- well, he wasn't in the Roman. Well, yeah, canon, not exactly like a Roman martyr. So something like someone like Saint Agnes, a virgin martyr in Rome. So de- definitely within the Roman canon. Yeah, that's said in a Western liturgy because a lot of Western Catholics tend to be in the Roman rite. Um, and you can go to rites and a discussion of that later, probably in another episode. But that's where you know the word canon gets its significance. Pretty much, without being too technical or scholarly, it's a list. It's something you measure with. It's a standard. Um, and so moving on from that little, uh, nugget of jargon, um, why did the church do this? Well, because, um, they didn't just want to say, Hey, this guy was good. We should make him a saint. Yeah. They're, they're again, standards here. Standards always important. Um, I think kind of tying in with our all saints episode, you know, with, 
you know, the Feast of All Saints kind of commemorating everybody that's holy, everybody that's in heaven, you know, everybody that's in the beatific vision, which is great. Um, you know, that was kind of formalized and uh, legitimized, you know, to recognize, you know, definitely the martyrs. Because you have to realize in the early church, you know, in the eyes of early uh, Catholics, you know, to be in heaven, for sure, to have the, the certainty is to be dying for Christ, um, is to give up your life for Christ, because that's pretty much uh, the ultimate way of giving yourself kind of away. why Ignatius of Antioch was a little little martyrdom crazy, as it were. Yeah, almost. read uh, uh, the epistle to the Romans. He wants to be ground in the teeth of the lions as wheat for Christ. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of zeal in the early church like, for martyrdom. do not save me. Um, so, but after, you know, Constantine comes in the early 4th century, after, you know, the church climbs out of the catacombs, all that stuff, um, people are like, okay, so maybe... You know, we see examples of uh, sanctity outside of martyrdom and spilling your blood. Um, and, uh, you know, local dioceses um, headed by their bishop would have causes and, you know, would have, you know, saints of their region and so on. Mm -hmm. But kind of, you know, glossing, I should say, so we can, you know, kind of streamline here. Um Eventually, it gets to the point, um, post-persecution by the Roman Empire and so on, that uh, there needs to be a little bit more of structure going on. They need to have actual standards, where it's not just like, hey, this guy has a pretty face. Um, and I think there are some, probably, whose sanctity is probably taken for granted, probably in the early church, but um, it comes to a point um, in the first millennium, uh, that uh, the church is like, okay, here we go. Where do we go? And so they go to the Bishop of Rome. And so local bishops uh, go to the Bishop of Rome and say, can we get some sort of process going on here? Um, and that's how it goes. Um, and I'm referencing just a little hagiography type of book. Um, you know, it's kind of just a little encyclopedia. It's the Catholic source book um, by uh, Father Peter Klein. Uh, it's 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 nice. It gives you the highlights. It's not very uh, scholarly or anything, but anyway. Um, so you're looking somewhere. Um, you know, it kind of starts with Boniface the uh, fourth. He dedicates the Roman Pantheon to Saint Mary of the Martyrs. And so again, you know, the idea of all martyrs, all saints is there very early on. You know, turn the Pantheon into a church dedicated to all the saints. You know, get rid of the. Uh, the, the idolatry to wooden stone and so on. But uh, according here to the Catholic source, just going on, you know, bullet points here, you know, you see the process become more crystallized, a little bit more structured in about 993. Um, and I guess the Pope here uh, who really got that underway was called Pope John the 15th. He uh, elevated... A Johns. Yeah, lots of Johns here. Uh, elevated Ulrich of Augsburg, Augsburg rather, Germany. Um, and uh, and then later on, um, uh, as the canonization process, again, is congealing and, you know, making a little bit more sense, um, Pope Alexander III, uh, you know, 11159 to 11108, uh, or 
1159 to 1181, whatever. Um, he, he basically said, okay, so you're giving me the, you know, you, you want bring all these cases to me, you know, to the, the, the Petron office, to the papacy, you know, and to the Holy See, which is Rome. Um, but it's just like, all right, if you're doing this, then let's streamline it. And all cases of canonization, no matter where you are and the, you know, the universal church, they have to come here to Rome because we got to, you know, make this a little bit more organized. Mm-hmm. And so it's Pope Alexander III who does this. So what are exactly the stages of canonization? Because, you know, you have now you have the standards, the, the little ruler, yeah. you know, the little inch marks along the way. What exactly are those? All right. So basically at the very first point of all of this, um, if you're going to be a saint, you need a following. Uh, you need a, what's called a cultist. So, um, it doesn't exactly sound appealing sound amazing, at first glance. But what is Christianity but a cultist of Christ, which is a following of Christ? But the idea that you need fans <laughs> um, or you know people who are going to you know vouch for you and say, hey, we think this guy is going to be a saint. Um, now, um, the process as we know it today came about in the age of John Paul II, um, he reigned for about 25 years, and in 1983, you know, standards, you know, are here that we know today, right now. So our it's age pretty of, recent. Yeah, it's as far as Catholicism is concerned. Yeah, it's recent. Um, so, um, that whole thing of you waiting hundreds of years is kind of depending on who you are, and again, the, your popularity. Um, that can actually be out, out the window. According to the new process, you have to wait 10 years after somebody's death um, before you can, you know, start, you know, putting things in line. Um, uh, you know, So I guess it would kind of get rid of some of the more casual fans while they're alive, or is yeah, it... Well, I mean, the idea is, um, again, going to St. Paul, uh, St. John Paul II, because um, he is a saint, uh, canonized by Pope Francis, but... Um, you know, when he died, you know, back in 2005, you know, people were waiting there basically being a death vigil. Um, and then as soon as he died, they were like, they said in Italian, Santo Subito, which is make him a saint now. Um, and so I believe he was canonized either 2014 or 2015. So pretty much almost um, 10 years. If, if it wasn't 10 years, probably Pope Francis probably is like, okay, we'll waive this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's his privilege. But... Um, the idea that there was still time after John Paul II died until, you know, he was finally, you know, Officially. canonized, canonized. Um, but 10 years is the journal take. Um, you know, there's some saint, uh, people out there who it might take a little bit longer. It's just, you know, what's on the desk there in, in Rome. And now it also probably would be good to talk about what is the actual office called that you know, goes through all these causes, you know, files the paperwork, does the so investigation. So a little bureaucracy, as it yeah. were. Yeah, so the, this is called um, the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. You know, um, basically, this is part of the Roman Curia, um, those offices which, you know, you know the, the Catholic Church in doing what they do. Um, you might hear other offices called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. The old school name for it was called the Holy Office of the Inquisition. Um, but... The offices of the church, you know, the doctrinal office, and this is, of course, just for, you know, making saints. Um, there's uh, what uh, Cardinal Seurat is, head of the Congregation for Divine Worship for Liturgy. I mean, mm-hmm. there are different, you know, sects of what you need to go on to the, you know, in the church that, you know, people work on. But So this office has to determine who can be uh, 
canonized as a saint is are there like there are different stages of the canonization process correct yeah there are different stages so again if you're popular if you got a cultist um what you need to do is you got to it still doesn't sound right <laughs> uh what you need to do is you got to write you got to write the bishop of whoever uh the person was their diocese with that they died in that mm-hmm. they lived in uh you got to write that bishop you got to let them know hey this person is holy. I have a devotion to you know this person's life. They have helped me live my faith. You know, yada yada yada. You gotta. I don't want to say you gotta sell them up, but you gotta make the cause known. Mm-hmm. And that starts by you know writing the bishop. You know, once you've got fans out there, uh, once you've got enough fans, um, basically, I believe it's even within the jurisdiction of um, maybe even the local bishop, you can call the person a servant of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just basically saying, hey, there's a following here. But once that point comes, um, if you want to go to the next stage to call this person venerable, um, respected, so, so on. venerable SOG. Um, basically, that bishop has to write the congregation for the causes of saints. Um, <laughs> and then the congregation is going to research what's so cool about this person, how holy they are, you know, and try to make sure the accounts that yeah. people have given them are yeah. actual and, then, and not fake. And then, you know, what virtues did they <clears throat> practice? Um, now, the congregation is not going to recommend yay or nay for this person's cause. Um, they're just going to make a report. And it's like, this is everything we could find. And then what they're going to do is they're with that report, they're going to present it to whoever's the pope at the time. Mm-hmm. The pope's going to look at it. And then it's the pope. It's like, okay, yay or nay. And then if he says, you know, yeah, then the person's going to, it's acceptable to call the person venerable. And then basically that's when you move on to the next step. So we got the venerable SOG, servant of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So servant of God to venerable. And now the next step um is blessed and this is the stage where a lot of people's causes kind of goes into limbo it's a good um, stall and... they 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 they'll get bl- be blessed and it'll be forever until they may be raised to the altars just depending on what the process is going on if you can find the miracles for this person's intercession so or they lost the paperwork somewhere on the desk yeah. um, and again it probably depends on the person's popularity and what the pope is doing at the time um but uh, most of the other processes are out uh, before blessed are done outside of the curia. Um, the congregation is more of a laissez-faire, hands-off until this point. Um, I mean, they do that initial report, but a lot of the stuff has to come from the local diocese and from a local cause and from people trying to talk whoever this is up. But once you reach this stage, this is where the congregation really goes into, you know, uh, investigation mode. Mm-hmm. Um there is this lengthy process in which the person who's really, uh, who's really trying to uh, snoop um, is called an advocate of God. Um, and so they're the promoter of the cause. And they're really trying to examine everything for, about this person. Their life, again, their virtues, their writings. Um, they may talk to, if you know, depending on what time it is, they may try to talk to people that may have known the person they may you know go through um you know local records wherever the person was try to ascertain everything about this person that they can so they're not just promoting a guy that you know someone said prayed for him once and i got cured of uh, herpes or something herpes or something um and yeah that's actually one of the things too um is at this point um you're looking for posthumous miracles um and so basically, 
all right, so this person's been venerable for a while. We have allowed, you know, you know, devotion to, you know, this person. Um, so if, if the person is in heaven, then where, where's the evidence of their praying for, you know, the church uh, militant on earth? Um, because again, in, in the Catholic perspective of things, the church, there's the church militant on earth, fighting the good fight and so on, maybe getting martyred to the faith, who knows? There's the church expectant, um, which is basically undergoing purgatory. Um, and then there's the church triumphant, which is in the immediate beatific vision, face to face with God. Mm -hmm. Um, all three are the church, all three are holy. Of course, the most spectacular part is, you know, church triumphant in heaven. Both Um, in the face of God. Yeah. In the beatific vision. But, um, looking for, um, basically the intercession of these saints and if there's any miracle, it's not because the saints are some local god or, um, you know, hocus pocus. All intercession, everything, it would have to be the cause is obviously the triune god. Mm-hmm. But um, it's like, are these people praying? Are they at face of God? You know, are there miracles, you know, proof of the divine, you know, respecting this person's intercession and so on and so forth. Um after, you know, miracles have been found, and I think the number now is two. Two miracles have to be verified, found, and approved. Um, so would Benny Hinn... Just kidding, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> not, not quite. He's not dead yet, so... Oh, that's true. We don't know. Um, I mean, the... Maybe people will still be using one of his coats to... You know, there is... Sorry. Once, you know, the process is complete... Um, there will be a ceremony, usually at St. Peter's Basilica, or in which this person will be beatified. And that basically means you can call them blessed, and we're more certain of their sanctity than we were before. Um, usually at a beatification ceremony, there will be um, de- 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 excuse me, there will be a declaration that this person is blessed, and then there will probably be a, a nice work of art, a photo, icon, whatever, um, of the person. And then um, sometimes, depending, there will be, uh, you know, relics. I know for John Paul's, the second's case, his uh, his relic was a vial of his own blood. Sometimes the relics can be interesting. But, um, yeah, vial of his own blood, um, which was which was drawn. Um, so that was fun. Uh, but so, so who decided to keep that vial of blood? I can't remember who drew the vial of blood. I don't know if he was exhumed <clears throat> or not. Sometimes they might uh, take a relic after posthumously but then sometimes the relics before like i mean they even have his cassock um with the the blood wounds when he was shot in saint peter's square in the early 80s so i mean that counts as a relic definitely um (laughs) but um so it just depends i guess it's better than a finger bone yeah finger bone or uh a tooth or you know sometimes people it's like i'll take their sweater i mean you (laughs) can you can definitely have a discussion about relics in another episode but um that's just that's just kind of like okay we have a ceremony here's something of theirs this is who this person is they're blessed and okay so on to the canonization process yeah like, so full-on sainthood yeah, so full-on full-on sainthood full-on uh verifying that this person was in heaven um so the pope finally is like all right we're going to raise this person to the altars so what we're going to do is, more than likely, we're going to choose a day that in the church year that, you know, the person will be venerated and will be remembered. Um, 
And that will just de- depend. Sometimes, depending on the person who's martyred or not, uh, their feast day will be the day of their martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it'll, it just depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but there will be a feast day, um, and it'll be up to the Pope to decide if it's a solemnity, a memorial, so on. Most, uh, more often than not, um, it's not going to be a solemnity. It's going to be a memorial. So you're going to remember the person's life, so on. Now, we have to remember there are a lot of can- canonized saints um, it's hard to fit them in one calendar year, isn't yeah. it? So a lot of a lot of the time, um, the popular saints will be <clears throat> venerated and remembered. And depending on local uh, regions within the Universal Church, um, you know, whoever's canonized will probably remember that day at Mass. Um, now, part of being in the canon is that you know you can be remembered at Mass. Now, it's not necessarily um, like the classic Roman canon where. Um, you know, you know, you know, through the intercession of you know, Clement, you know, Cletus, you know, uh, Boniface, blah 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 blah. You know, again, Lucy, Agnes, blah blah blah. All those early, early martyrs, not necessarily, but you're in the canon now. You're in that list of saints who are like we can rely on their sanctity. Um, we, we, you know, we vetted them, <laughs> um, and we can rely on this. And now, part of that is. Um, the final step of canonization is the canonization mass. Mm-hmm. So again, the Pope will have a mass in honor um, of whoever's going to be canonized that day. Sometimes there can be several saints canonized in one day at the mass. Um, but um, he will basically read aloud, this person, so on, is a saint. Um, you know, we, we can be very sure that they're there in the beatific vision. Um, and then, you know... That's the canonization mass. And then, you know, whereas beatification allowed for veneration of the saint, canonization says, kind of basically requires it. Which by requiring means is like you don't have to worry about this person's sanctity. That's what it is meant by required. Not everybody's going to have a devotion to some obscure uh, 14th century saint. But the idea is that you don't have to worry about this person's sanctity. Because our, our process, our, we vetted we, as much as we could to verify that this person was a servant of God. This person is is holy. Um, um, so um, now that they're canonized, they will have a feast day whenever it is. And uh, they will be remembered in the Eucharistic prayer at Mass. So they're, you know, as the, the phrase goes, they will be raised to the altars and they are in the canon. And now they get a stained glass window and a... And a yep, you little, can make all the art... Make a statue. And cheap souvenirs you want. <laughs> Capitalism at work. Yeah. So now we know, like, you know, how to become a saint. Um, was there any particular saint of the church, you know, from any era that you kind of relate to or, or really appreciate or that's really affected, you know, your faith and the way you... Well, I would say for me, since I'm a convert to Catholicism, I definitely always recommend the Apostolic Fathers. You know, the people whose probably their sanctity was taken for granted, so the actual canonization process wasn't in full swing for them. But nevertheless, in the Roman canon, or not the Roman canon, but it's accepted that they're uh, holy. Um, So (laughs) definitely look at, you know, the Apostolic Fathers. Look at uh, St. Clement, who was the third bishop of Rome. Uh, Look at St. Ignatius of Antioch who was marred for his faith um, in Rome. Look at Polycarp, um, who was also martyred for his yeah. faith. And we have a saint cast about him. Yep, that's right, a saint cast. Um, now, it should be remembered that uh, both Ignatius and uh, Polycarp have connections to the Apostle John. Um, and so they they knew John. They were very familiar with his apostolic teaching. And so 
um, it's, you know, anything you hear from them, you know, it, it's like you can probably be sure that, you know. They're, it's it coming comes, from close to the source. It's close to the source. It comes from John who came from Jesus, you know. It's, this is the idea of apostolic succession there. It's just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a, a game of phone tag. But I know it's just it's just very fascinating when you read and see their devotion and see how, you know, how fervent they are, but then also how uh, how structured they are um, and how liturgical they are. And it's just, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Um, for me, it did. Um, but I say after, you know, you know, church fathers and, you know, the, the post-apostolic age, you know, for me, I tend to be a little monkish. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I definitely enjoy, you know, you know, Augustine, who did have a rule. I mean, Augustine is probably a favorite for, you know, a lot of Catholics. But, um, I mean, he is the father of Western theology. But I think Augustine's confessions really changed, you know, the way I looked at a lot of things. And, you know, you know, he's called the doctor of grace. So, you know, the idea of dependence on God um, and, you know, do... I don't know. He was kind of just the perfect balance. You know, he, he, he fought the Pelagians. So he was like, don't work for your salvation, you know, in the sense of, you know, something, you know, strenuous and weird and, you know, but then he's also is like fought the Manichaeans. So he's like, matter is good. And also work out your salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. he had the perfect, you know, Catholic balance there of, uh, you know, you know, we're saved by grace, but the proof is in the pudding. The proof were. is in the pudding. Don't, you know, don't just, you know, say your sinner's prayer and expect that to save you. You actually have to, you know, do mm. something. Um, and, and works are a natural outgrowth of faith. If those aren't present, then yeah. it's, well, you know, you're uh, probably you know, Go not. to James, I, you know, I will show you my faith by my works. Definitely, mm-hmm. that's present there. And that's, you know, very uh, positive. Um, I, of course, like, you know, like you, like St. Patrick. I like St. Benedict, you know, very... Mm-hmm. Bishopy, very monkey. Um, I'm also very influenced by uh, a movement called scholasticism, which is a medieval thing. Mm-hmm. Um, very rational um, school of thought and theology. Um, very big on you know uh, ontological proofs for God. Of course, Thomas Aquinas is the poster boy for that. He was a Dominican friar. Um, so just seeing that the you know faith and reason go together. Um, especially as encapsulated in Aquinas and that, you know, we do behold the mystery, but th- just because um, that is so doesn't mean you have to have a blind faith. Mm-hmm. And faith can be very rational. Um, yeah. But even there at the end of his life, Aquinas, like, experienced something so incredible that he realized all of our our rationality, well, you know, it's good. Well, yeah, he wrote this thing, a big... Uh, he wrote a lot of manuals. So he had the Summa Theologiae, which is his the Summa Theology, his big theology manual, and it's like several thousand pages. And uh, he wrote it for beginners. You know, and that's that's you know the stage of uh, of scholasticism. Of course, you have to remember Catholicism built the the great universities that we take for granted today. Of course, universities are nothing like they were then. They yeah. are actually Catholic. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, the, he taught at the University of Paris. He he was a he was a doctor and then of course he's called the doctor the angelic doctor by the church and he for a long time Thomas Aquinas if you want to know what Catholicism taught you know the church is like look at Aquinas I mean it's hard to depart from that but um, 
I think, yeah, definitely the Angelic Doctor um, has form my thinking. I have not read all the Summa Theologiae that very few Thomists even have. And I mean, <laughs> I even have here what a shorter Summa, um, even bef- right before he died, he wrote something called the Compendium of Theology, which was the Summa, but it was like watered down. And so <laughs> he was always trying to do something. I believe even before he died, he was dictating a commentary on the Song of Songs to one of his fellow friars. And then he, of course, just died. Um, so like his, his shorter Summa, since he wrote the Summa to be kind of a beginner's Summa must have been like, okay, this is for babies and children. But um, I think, you know, you even think about Aquinas, like, I hear stories of, like, he would have at least a few scribes, and, you know, different parts of the Summa, he would talk to one scribe, write it down, other scribe, talk about it, write it down, you know, and it's all from memory, and of course, when you're a friar, you know, and a professor, I mean, all you do is read, Um, so, I mean, it's definitely appealing to me, and I would say probably after that, just kind of going skipping you know a little bit of history um we come to the 20th century and to a saint that was canonized in the 20th century by uh john paul ii um basically uh saint maximilian colby he was a priest and he was basically gave up his life um for a a person in a concentration camp who uh, had a family and Mm -hmm. he just gave up his life for that. And of course, he had other things he did too. He was had a very uh, high Marian devotion. He, um, I believe it was called the Knights of the Immaculata. Um, but anyway, high Marian devotion, and he gave up his life at a concentration camp, camp so that another man may might live. Um, uh, I believe it was... Uh, it was either gas or uh, lethal in, injection. But I, long story short, he was killed by the Nazis. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone else could live, but uh, I don't know. Uh, it's very fascinating. Um, just the, when you look at you know the saints in general, and especially the canonized saints, because you know they all have their signs and their symbols and you know icons and art and so on. I mean, there's so many. Uh, and all their can, icons have the forehead abs. Right, but um, you know, and it's kind of cool, especially like um, you know later on, like with people who you might consider more recent that you know there might be a church named after them i don't know i've seen it yet but you know somebody as contemporary as mother Teresa, she was canonized a few years ago and it's just like sometimes when we might see saint Teresa of calcutta church you know it's just like i mean there's probably one in india prob- yeah in calcutta somewhere <laughs> um but the idea that yeah you know the saints are, are are there and um we look to their example um and it's a very real reality. The as the you know the creed would say the communion of, of saints. Mm-hmm. You know sometimes I, I kind of wish that Protestants had a uh, kind of like a, a rule for not necessarily canonization of making people saints, but something similar. Because um, you know there are definitely people that I think would kind of fit that bill. Um, for me, especially when it comes to people that aren't actually canonized and haven't been recognized by pretty much everyone in the church. Um, David Livingston, you know, the missionary to Africa, who basically um, is credited for opening the door to the gospel in throughout in the entirety of Africa because of his witness. And um, even though he only had one convert who was kind of a wishy-washy chieftain, you know, he would he had a bunch of wives and David Livingston told him to, you know, to, to take care of the wives that he had, but to only remain married to his first one. And then he comes back and he leaves and comes back and the guy's got another new wife. So he chastises him for that, and the guys <laughs> repented, and 
and went back with his first wife. And then eventually, the whole tribe followed David Livingston around pretty much everywhere he went for a, for a good number of years. Um, and then, of course, Jim Elliott, the martyr, the, along with Nate Saint in Ecuador. You know, they were killed by the, uh, the Waudani Indians. Um, you know, his, his life story, especially as recorded in the uh, book compiled by his wife of his diary and his writings, you know, the, his, his absolute insane pure devotion to God and to, and to evangelization and to te- and to bringing the gospel to people who had no idea who God was, um, you know, he absolutely lived by the words that he wrote in his journal that he um, he loses nothing who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, which is kind of a butchering of the phrase. Um, and then when it comes to canonized saints, my go-to is always the, the Celtic saints. You got uh, St. Patrick, St. Bridget of Kildare, and then St. Columkiel. Um, Columkiel is a, a favorite of mine. You know, we see a very flawed person who nevertheless you know realizes when he's done wrong kind of almost in a king david style way you know he got jealous and and caused a a lot of death um due to something with a you know a heifer and (laughs) and his own tribe and a book like he, he caused a war over a book and then realized that what he'd done was was wrong, and he self-imposed exile. And in his exile, he created the the monk uh, community, the abbey on Iona. And from there, they evangelized Scotland. And then uh, he was influential in spreading the gospel all all the way through Scotland. He was highly respected by the the Scottish Celts, and then by the Picts. Um, and eventually paved the way for the gospel to be brought back almost and, you know, learning and all that to be brought back into Europe when it came to Alfred the Great. And then you had the, 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 oh, what's it called? The Charlemagne's, the Carolingians. Um, and, you know, going back even further, you know, like St. Athanasius, like, or Athanasius, like we were talking about, you know, he, his, his devotion, his absolute, uh, um, determination in the face of heresy to never back down and to never give in to Arianism and, and all the other things that came up. Yeah, as, a, um, as the phrase goes, uh, uh, Athanasius said, if it's Athanasius against the, if it's the world against Athanasius, then it's Athanasius against the world. So have you ever heard the word, you know, someone say something, you know, it's me contra mundum, that's where it comes from, is from Athanasius. So I, I just learned that now. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I think that that will be the end of our very long episode. Um, thanks for listening. I hope you guys learned something new about canonization. I know I did, uh, because this isn't a part of the church, a church history that I know very much about being, you know, Protestant and not a high church Protestant. You, you know, actually, they actually have, you know, saints and saint days and whatnot. All right. Well, I guess that about sums it up for now. Um, I'm Nathaniel and I'm a Catholic. And I'm Elijah and I'm a Protestant. And we'll see you guys next time.